Once again this evening, I'd like to ask you to open your Bible, if you brought it with you, and I hope you did, to the book of Second Peter in the New Testament. Tonight we conclude our study in this epistle, and I'll begin reading in chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter was a man of deep, deep passion. His passion in this letter, as we have unfolded it, is that we grow as believers. That we grow in Jesus Christ. That is that we become more Christ-like, following the pattern which he laid out for us in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. As Peter loved the Lord Jesus, so he also loved the Lord's people. You will note in this chapter, four times he addresses us, his readers, as beloved. Verse 1, again in verse 8, Verse 14 and verse 17. Beloved, he says, a man of deep passion. And he addressed his remarks regarding Paul, the apostle, with this preface, our beloved brother Paul. Now you think back about uh, all of the contact between Peter and Paul, and you know this is a rather remarkable statement because they didn't always see eye to eye. And indeed, Paul corrected Peter who was in the Lord before him. And yet Peter has accepted that, obviously, and deeply loves the Apostle Paul. A motive for the discipline that it takes to grow in Jesus Christ is the knowledge that it matters that we do. It matters that we do grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It matters to us. Life is different 
discipline. You and I discipline ourselves to grow. And furthermore, eternity is different. It matters to the Lord that you and I grow. Indeed, Peter lays out before us in this book the fact that God has already appointed a time on his calendar when there is going to be an accounting of all people. All people. For the believer, too. We who are believers in Jesus Christ will be called to give account of our lives at the Bema Seat, judgment it's called. And based upon the result of that judgment, we will then enter into the kingdom of our Lord with certain responsibilities. And the Word of God seems to indicate that we can have responsibilities or we can have those responsibilities taken away from us if, in fact, we haven't been diligent and faithful in this life. So it matters that we grow in Christ. But those who are outside of Jesus Christ likewise face an appointment of judgment with God. It is a final judgment, and it is one that involves eternal punishment and ruin. He is mentioned already in this book, but look in chapter 3, verse 7, where again he says that fire is kept for the day of judgment and destruction. The word doesn't mean annihilation, but it means eternal loss. The eternal loss of ungodly men. Who are ungodly men? Well, those are people who live without God. God uh, may be in their vocabulary in a good way or a bad way. But even if it's in a good way, if there's not a personal relationship with God, if it's not a personal faith in God, then they're ungodly. It means to live life without God in the focus, in the center of it. And he says those who choose to live that way face judgment from God. Today it's becoming popular to think of life as uh, an unending cycle of reincarnations. But life is not that. Neither is life a brief, senseless day in which to live as one wishes, as though we were only evolved animals of some sort. We are created as human beings in the image of God, and as such, life has purpose, and life has a destiny. Life has a goal toward which it moves with every tick of the clock. The universe is not eternal either. Like us, the universe itself had a beginning, and the universe has an ending, at least the universe as we know it today. We talked last Sunday night about this phrase, the day of the Lord, and the fact that it embraces two different streams of thought under its canopy. One is the thought of judgment from God upon the ungodly. The other is blessing from God upon the believers. The day of the Lord is not just one 24-hour period. It's a, it's a lengthy period of time in which God will both judge those who are ungodly and will bless those who are his own. The day of the Lord involves the coming reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then when the day of the Lord is finished, 
with a final judgment from God, it ushers in what is called in this text, and I think only in this text, in all of the Bible, the day of God, which is different than the day of the Lord. After the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ, when he will reign upon this earth, and believe me, his reign in the future is as sure as his birth in Bethlehem that we just sung about a few moments ago. He is going to come and reign upon the earth. But it's for a limited time. It's for a thousand years. And when that thousand years is completed, the scriptures indicate there is one final time of judgment when God will deal thoroughly with all wickedness and will put it away forever. And then God is going to bring to an end the universe as we know it. And we'll start over again with a new heaven and a new earth, which he talks about in verse 13. The day of God is that new heaven and new earth in the future. It is the resumption of a timeless state or a state when there is unending time, however you may define eternity. But it's after the world order as we know it now has been concluded. This morning I talked a little bit about George Bush's idea of a new world order. Whatever he has in mind by that, believe me, it is nothing compared to what God has in mind. Because God is going to start all over again with a brand new earth and a brand new heavens. And that will truly be a new order. And that is what the day of God is. Now the day of the Lord, he describes in verse 10 as coming like a thief, which is a phrase meaning it will come unexpectedly upon those who are not looking for it. They will not be watching for it. They will not be alert to it. And therefore they will fail to anticipate it. And suddenly it will come upon them. And he says this day of the Lord, and again it's a long period of time, embracing initial judgment, then this thousand-year reign of Christ, and then a final spurt of judgment, final judgment. The day of the Lord then will conclude with the destruction of the present heavens and earth. And that's what he describes for us uh, in these verses. In verse 10 he says, The heavens will pass away with a roar. Interesting word. Uh, it, it means with a hiss, with a crackling sound, as the sound of a roaring fire in your fireplace. When it's just going brightly and it's cracking and popping, it's with that kind of a sound, he says, that the heavens are going to simply pass away and be no more at all. Or for those of you who are hunters and you go out looking for quail and you're walking through that brush and the grass and suddenly that covey of quail comes up in front of you and scares you half into a heart attack. It's that sound, of the, the rushing of the wings of those birds. That's the sound, he says, that will be present when the present order passes away. He says it involves the elements being destroyed with intense heat. The word elements here means the very basic things. 
of the universe. It could mean the, the air, fire, water, earth, or it, it could refer to the basic atomic structure of the universe, which we now know about, which of course Peter didn't know about 2,000 years ago. We understand something at least of the basic structure of all the elements in the world and the whole universe. And he says that there is going to be a destruction, a breakdown, an atomic breakdown, if you please, of the whole structure of the present order. And he says it involves intense heat. Well, anything that we know about uh, atomic bombs uh, involves that kind of sound and uh, power and heat. This word intense heat was used by medical doctors in the New Testament day to refer to a feverish heat arising from within the body of a person. Intense heat, a fever. It can also be used of the conflagration that arises from the internal buildup of power and heat in a volcano, such as erupted with Mount St. Helens some ten years ago, when the mountain just blew its top, and that tremendous cloud of gases burst forth from that mountain, incinerating everything in its path, including human beings. That kind of intense heat is in view here. The same thought. He says that it's all going to be destroyed and the works of the earth, he says, will be burned up. Interesting word because a better understanding of this word is that it will be exposed or found out. I think the NIV uh, even translates it that way. It seems to mean that all of the works of man that are a part of this whole present order of things, all of those works are going to be exposed and dealt with. Nothing, nothing will be left. He says in verse 12 that uh, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. That is, they will just melt uh, into their, their basics. The heavens and the earth, well, let me just read verse 12 for you in the original. It says, the heavens being set on fire will be dissolved and the elements burning will melt. That's what it says. And all of that then will usher in what we've called here the day of God. He describes it in verse 13 as the new heavens and new earth. It does not mean new in time though that will be true, but it means new in quality. It's going to be substantially different than the universe as we know it now. And the basic difference is going to be in its moral quality because he says in it will dwell righteousness. That is, righteousness will just settle down and be right at home in that new order of the universe that God is going to create. Uh, there are many texts in Scripture that deal with this same theme. Isaiah 55, verse 65, rather, verse 17. Isaiah 66, verses 20 through to 20, 22 to 24. Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 and following. Uh, 
a new order of things characterized by righteousness. It will be entirely free from the curse of Adam's sin and the wickedness of mankind. Free from that, all of that will be gone, and righteousness will be at home. Now, what in the world are we to do in light of what we know is coming? Three times, he says here, in essence, you're looking for this. Notice it, verse 12, verse 13, we are looking. Verse 14, you look for these things. <clears throat> the word look there means to, to think towards it. Just like the boys and girls who are here tonight are probably looking forward to Christmas. Now, I don't know why particularly. It may have something to do with presents. But they are looking forward to that. They're thinking about it. I've already had several lists revised each time. Why? Because they're looking for, they're thinking toward Christmas. Peter says, now you are thinking. Your mind is set toward this new order that God is going to bring to pass. After all that we know now is gone, it is no more. Now, what kind of people ought we to be? What ought we to do in light of this? And he tells us. He tells us in the first place we are to be diligent. Verse 14. Be diligent. The thought is here to do your best, to take care, to give it everything you've got to do two things. Number one, to live right. And he describes that in verse 14. To be found by him, by Christ, when he comes in peace. In other words, as I look at myself and my circumstances, to be living at peace. Not upset, not anxious, not fearful in light of what's coming, to be at peace. He says also to be spotless. That is, as God sees me inwardly, to be free from heart problems. Not of the muscle in my chest, but the, the moral attitudes in my life. Be spotless when it comes to the temptation to filthiness, which is so prominent in our world. What we see, what we participate in. He says, live spotless, be free from that. Be spotless of bitterness. Be spotless when it comes to covetousness, the attitude of greed, of hanging on. Be spotless from worldliness. As God sees me, he says, be diligent to be found inwardly without any spot. And then he says also to be blameless, to be found by him to be blameless. That is, as others see me, at least outwardly, that there is no just accusation for blame against me. He says, in light of what you're expecting, live so that no one can point a finger and say, yeah, look what you did. Now, there are sometimes people who will do that anyway. But the point is, don't live so as to give them a reason for doing it. If they must point their finger, let them do it as liars, not pointing to the truth. Be diligent, he says, to live right. In verses 15 and 16, he says, be diligent to think right. To think right. About what? Well, he says in the first place about the Lord's patience. You may say, Lord, come on, hasten it. 
Lord, return, come. But he says, God is patient. And you understand that his patience, you think right about his patience, understand that his patience in returning means salvation. There are some people who need to trust Christ yet and be saved from the judgment to come. And they haven't done that yet. So you be patient like God's patient. And understand there are still people who need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And obviously by application in your patience, get the word out. Be telling people, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. We're to be diligent to think right about the Lord's patience. We're to be diligent to think right according to the Lord's pattern. The Lord's pattern. I see that here in his words regarding Paul. You and I are to think like the Word of God tells us to think. Notice he talks about Paul who has written several letters as he puts it here. He equates Paul's writings with the rest of Scripture. Do you notice that? Here is one internal evidence of the inspiration of the Bible. Here is Peter, an apostle, pointing to something that Paul has written and says it's just the same what he's written as all of the other Scriptures, what Isaiah wrote and Jeremiah and Moses and all of the other writers of Scripture. An internal evidence of inspiration, very important to note that. And he refers to these writings of Paul for authority, conforming ourselves to what Paul has written, even though some things are hard to understand, and I think most of us would agree with that. <clears throat> but he says, frame your mind around the revelation of God. Think right. Boy, our world today tries to force us to think in an ungodly way. Just get God out of it. Put God over here in his place and think for yourself. The scripture says that we are to keep God in the center and we are let, to let the Bible frame our thought process to think right. And he warns that there are some people who take scripture and distort it. The word means to to twist it out of shape. There are some preachers and other religious leaders and theologians who are so capable of doing this, just taking the Bible and and suddenly it, they say it says something that's not even there. Or what is there, they say, is not even said. He says, beware of those kinds of people. He says, these are people who are untaught. doesn't mean they're unschooled doesn't mean they haven't been to seminary, but it means that they have lacked the trained habit of reflection from the Spirit of God. They lack a discipline of good sense that comes from the Lord, the Spirit working in their minds. They're untaught by Him, in other words, and they're unstable. The thought is that they have no foundation. There's no fixedness to their lives. So think right. He says, be diligent to be found of him, to be living right, to think right. And then he says, not only be diligent, but be on guard, verses 17 and 18. A military term, be on guard. 
If there's anything we've learned this last week from watching the stories about Pearl Harbor is that we were not on guard. We were sloppy. We were sloppy. Peter says, you be on guard for two things. Number one, be on guard not to fall. Not to fall. He says, even if you're steadfast, even if you have stability in your life in contrast to these people I've just talked about, even though you have a foundation, be on guard lest you be dislodged. Now, it doesn't mean to lose your salvation. But it means that uh, you be carried away by error from men who are lawless, who are unprincipled. Do not fall. Be on guard against that. We need to, to put up the walls in our lives. Be on guard against falling away after the false teaching of the kind of people he's described to us in this book. Then he says also be on guard to keep growing. He says keep growing in the grace of Jesus Christ, that is, becoming like him. Keep growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, coming to know him more intimately. You know, the Christian life is something like riding a bicycle. If you stop, you fall over. You've got to keep pedaling. You've got to keep moving. And so Peter says, be on guard to keep on growing in Jesus Christ. Now, why be so concerned about growing as Peter is in this book? <clears throat> because the one whom we can come to know and be like is the one who is preeminent over all. Peter concludes the book by saying, to him, Jesus Christ, be the glory. Now, I want to tell you, that meant something for a Jew because the glory to a Jew meant the Shekinah, that visible manifestation of God. The glory referred to God himself, to his essence. And Peter now uses that term and applies it to Jesus Christ. He says, all the glory be to him both now and to the day of eternity. If you just draw the line under this whole book, there is one concern that we need to really focus on, just one issue. And that is that whatever we do, that we bring glory to Jesus Christ. In my tonight, in my tomorrow, in my relationships, in my responsibilities in life, to be concerned to bring glory to Jesus Christ because he alone is worthy. So that's the one issue to focus on, says Peter. Glory to God. Whatever you do, writes Paul, our beloved brother, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Let's determine to live that way and to keep on growing and not to fall and to be diligent, to be found by our Lord, to be living right and thinking right in light of what we know to expect. Let's pray together. Well, my friend, as we bring this book to a close, it's an appropriate time to ask the question in our hearts, am I ready for the judgment? If I were to stand before God today, would I stand before him as one of his beloved children 
to receive reward or as one who is a stranger to him to receive damnation. You see, all of us will stand before God in one way or the other. That's sure. We expect that. However religious you may have been, and like some of the ones who were baptized tonight, maybe you've been raised in a Christian environment. Maybe your parents are Christians or have been Christians. But dear friend, God has no grandchildren. He has only children. You must make the decision for yourself. A Christian environment is a wonderful way to be raised, but it doesn't substitute for salvation. It can help prepare our hearts for that day when we trust Jesus Christ. Have you trusted him alone? You say, no, how do I do that? Well, simply by in your heart acknowledging your sinfulness to God and saying, oh God, I confess my sins to you. And I come to you through your son, Jesus Christ, who suffered and died on the cross for my sins and who rose again. And I turn from everything else that I've trusted in all of my life <clears throat> to place my faith in your Son alone. And dear friend, when you and I do that, with all of our hearts, when we do that, God receives us as his children. He changes his relationship to us. And he saves us. I hope that might be your heart's decision tonight. And oh, may those of us who know Christ be growing. Father, we give thanks to you for what we've studied in this book over the last months. For Peter's heart of passion for us, though we've lived now 2,000 years later. And yet his intense desire recorded in his words that we too might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. May it be true of us, Lord. May none of us come short of the grace of God. May none of us have received the grace of God in vain, but may we be growing. <clears throat> and Father, I pray tonight that as we go out the doors, back to our homes and into a new week of responsibilities, that we'll be mindful that you're with us, but also mindful of what we expect in the new order that's to come. And may we be living and thinking right in light of all of that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat>